was speaking at uh, Liberty this for their Sunday school hour, so uh, I felt like John Wesley this morning. So I parked my horse right outside. I hope that's okay. It won't eat your petunias. We'll be all right. <clears throat> well, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word. These, this ancient text penned many, many years ago is alive. It's vibrant. It's true. And uh, Lord, as we journey into the text this morning, may the power of the Spirit, which you promised, uh, speak forth through these words. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know the test. <clears throat> the lights are dimmed. There's some chart with a few letters on it. And someone's invading your private space and they lean and whisper in your ear, is it better here or here? Right? <clears throat> you know what I'm talking about, the optometrist, right? Having trifocals, I know fully well what that means. <clears throat> I've, I've always said it's a good thing they don't take your blood pressure because I don't know about you, but I'm stressing out between option three and option 431. I don't know. What are, uh, whatever. Okay. That's fine. Uh, but uh, we're not doing a Snellen test this morning uh, chart, uh, but we are going to look at 2020 spiritual vision. So if you would, turn to John chapter 9, as your pastor just mentioned. Jenny, thank you for the honor of being here. He also loaned me your watch. He told me uh, I have until one, so that's magnificent. <laughs> no, no. Uh, John chapter 9. I love John's gospel. John even tells us there are many miracles that Jesus has performed, but I've only picked a few so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so when you come across a miracle in John's gospel, you need to sit up and take nourishment. It's significant. There's something you need to see, and John 9 is no exception. Uh, as Pastor mentioned, at uh, 3 o'clock this afternoon, we're going to walk through the itinerary, and one of the places we go to is the very place this whole scene occurred at, and we'll talk about that, but... 9-1, it says, now as Jesus was passing by, and I want you to watch who sees and who should see and doesn't see and who doesn't see but sees, all right? Watch that as we go through this text. It's very significant. He saw, Jesus saw a man who had been blind from birth. Five times, John's going to tell us he's been blind from birth. Why? He's telling us about the magnitude of the miracles. Remember, he's only recorded a few so that you might believe. There are records of people having their eyesight restored in the first century, but not from birth. All right? There's no question here. This is an unbelievable miracle. It says, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who committed the sin, watch this, that caused him to be born blind, this man or his parents? The disciples have bought into the line that's being fed is that if there is an uh, deformity, if there is a sickness, then sin is automatically equated. And we'll come back to that later on this morning. Uh, sad commentary. And by the way, the religious rulers will repeat it as well. So it is the prevalent thought of the day. Jesus answered, thankfully, by the way, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born blind. Watch this, so that the acts of God may be revealed through what happens to him. What a bummer for the blind man. Or is it? 
We must perform the deeds, he says, of the one who sent me as long as it's daytime. Night is coming. As long as I am the world, I am the light of the world. He repeated, this was stated in chapter 8, these I am statements. I am the bread of life, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. You you know these I am statements, right? They're peppered throughout the, the narrative in these 21 chapters. And when you see them, usually there's a miracle that's orbiting around it because it's going to illustrate the I am statement. I am the light of the world. Boom, we're going to give sight to a blind guy. And so it says in verse 6, having said this, he spat on the ground and made some mud with his saliva. Yuck, right? Now, come on, what in the world? I mean, what? elsewhere, Jesus doesn't even go to the town. He's in Cana area. He says, yeah, go back to Capernaum because the guy will be healed. And, and this one, he's, he's making mud. What's the liva? He smeared the mud on the blind man's eyes and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. I'm assuming this event's taking some place around the Temple Mount area. You're going down 300 yards, about three football fields, down to the pool of Siloam, which is huge. It was just discovered in 2003, by the way, 2004. They're building a, a sewer line in modern Jerusalem and stumbled upon a pool not just any size pool, and it is now clearly seen as the Pool of Siloam. So here's this blind guy. In fact, you can walk a portion of the street, that very street this man walked on, and we will do that, uh, Lord willing, next summer, but you can, you can walk it. Go wash in the Pool of Siloam, which means scent. So this blind man, can you imagine? Mud on his eyes, <laughs> walking through the crowds. This is one of the major Jewish pilgrimages of the day. So we're talking probably a city that normally is around 70,000 is now 150, maybe 200,000 people. And the Pool of Siloam is one of the major pools the Jews would go to for ritual cleansing before going up to the Temple Mount. So you got worshipers going everywhere. Some of them now have cleaned, right? Ooh, you got the idea? Get away. Who is this guy? He's a beggar. He's got mud on his eyes. Ugh. What a scene, right? And he came back seeing. Uh, No faith on the part of the blind man has been noted, right? Faith was not prerequisite for the healing. In fact, three times this man will grow in his understanding of Jesus is. In other words, three times his vision will be clearer in seeing who Jesus is figuratively, And three times the religious rulers who should see clearly who Jesus is demonstrate they're truly blind. So you have this going on in the text, right? Very powerful. It says, then the neighbors and the people who had seen him previously as a beggar began saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some people said, oh, it looks like him. (laughs) Remember? I said, look who can see and who cannot see. Very significant. The man kept saying, "I'm, I'm the one. (laughs) <laughs> I love it. Well, then how did, they make, how did he make you see? You replied, well, this man called Jesus. There it is. All he knows about this Jesus is that's his name. And Yeshua was a common name in the first century. That's why the text often says Jesus of Nazareth. So you know who he is, like Mary of Magdala. So you know she's from Magdalene, right? Or Magdala, she's a Magdalene, right? <clears throat> Smeared on his eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and was able to see. And they said to him, where is this man? He goes, I don't know. All I know is his name. Well, that's pretty amazing. If I had an eye doctor that could make me see. 
uh, after eye surgeries, et cetera, I'd be, uh, you know, engraving his name on, I don't know, I'd get a tattoo or something. I don't know. Uh, Dr. Whoever. Then they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. Now, here they come, right? This is a religious sect. You know who the Pharisees are, right? They're your frozen chosen. Uh, what you don't know about the Pharisees from first century world is they were actually very popular among the people. They were greatly loved. They were your pious ones. Bless their pointed little heads. About 6,000 of them uh, shuffling through the towns, making sure everyone's staying pure and clean, etc. And there's another religious sect called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were far more liberal. They didn't hold to the entire Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament like the Pharisees. They didn't believe in the supernatural, the Sadducees, but the Pharisees did. They were very devout. And notice what it says. <clears throat> it says, And John, our omniscient narrator, so to speak, gives us a parenthetical clause you must not miss. Because here it is. He says, Now the day on which Jesus made the mud and caused him to see was the Sabbath. Dun, 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 dun. Here it is. This is where the rubber meets the road. In fact, as you go into Mark's gospel, if you, you read chapter 1, it says he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath at Capernaum, and it, it's a foreshadowing. <laughs> the Sabbath for the Pharisees, for the devout Jews, was a day that you were not to perform any act. You weren't allowed to heal unless it was a life and death situation. Even today, I have groups that, you know, in, in these major hotels, you don't go to the Shabbat elevator because if it's Sabbath, that elevator only goes one floor at a time. It can't go more than one floor or it's working. I'm not joking. You're looking at me like I'm smoking something. I'm telling you the truth, all right? This is the Sabbath in Jerusalem even today. <clears throat> it's kind of like the South on a Sunday, you know? You won't find anything open. Well, that's, that's true even in Israel today on the Sabbath. And such was the case then. In fact, the Jews, uh, later on, the, it's, it's called the Mishnah. It's a Jewish writing in 250 A.D., this writing is actually a codification or a writing down of the oral laws that existed at the time of Jesus. And there's a whole section on Shabbat, the Sabbath. And, and, and when you can mend and how much you can mend and how far you can sow and what you can sow. But there's even regulations on if you spit how far it can roll or its work. And what Jesus does is he breaks the Sabbath by spitting and letting it roll, making mud and applying to the eyes. And what is Jesus saying? I am the Lord of the Sabbath, right? I have this authority. Don't mess with me, really, is what he's saying. And the Pharisees, and this is where they have their holy hissy. The Pharisees asked him again. Now, he had gained his sight. He replied, he put the mud on my eyes. Then some of the Pharisees began to say, this man is not from God because he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, well, how can a man who's a sinner perform such miraculous signs? And there was division among them. So again, they asked the man who used to be blind, what do you say about him since he caused you to see? And, you know, here's this, I mean, he's not deaf, right? I mean, he's hearing all this going on. And he said, ah, oh, well, maybe he's more than just Jesus. He says, oh, well, he's a prophet, the cataracts, the spiritual cataracts are starting to come off this man, aren't they? 
as he's beginning to see clearly who this Jesus really is, you know what? You're right. I listened to all you talk. This must be pretty significant. Well, on it goes. The Jewish religious rulers refused to believe, and that is key. John said it. I've only recorded a few miracles that you might, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ. And these miracles are, John loves everything in black and white. Either you're going to believe who this Jesus is, or you're going to deny him. And C.S. Lewis is right when he said, either this Jesus is a crazy man, or he's the son of God. But there's no middle ground. You don't have that choice. Jesus didn't allow it. Right? And so we go to the text, and it says, that he had really been born blind, and they gained his sight. Then they asked the parents, Is this the son whom you say, and talk about louses of parents. I mean, why is their son begging? Why aren't they caring for him? Now, some people say I'm too hard on the parents, but I don't think so. Because watch what they do next. How does he now see his parents said, we know this is our son, and then he was born blind, but we don't know. It's not our problem. There's, there's, There's no protection of their son. Ask him. He's a mature adult. He'll speak for himself. And John lets us know why they were so willing to give up their son. It says his parents said these things because they were afraid of, you know, what? Being excommunicated. And that's huge. Can't go to the synagogue. Can't go to the temple. You know the ramifications of that? It's not just social, religious. It's economic. I mean, there's, there's a whole host of problems with that. And so for this, the Jewish leaders had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. And for this reason, they said, he's, he's an adult, ask him. Verse 24, then they summoned the man who used to be blind a second time and said, promise before God to tell the truth. Verse 25, he, again, by the way, with the parents, the blind man whose eyesight has been restored is not deaf. So he's also hearing his parents in the midst of all this. And it said, promise before God, in verse 25, he replied, I do not know whether he's a sinner. I do know one thing, although I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, this is the third time, by the way, he's making this statement. What did he do to you? How did he cause you to see? And the blind man says, I told you already. Why? Do you, do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples as well, do you? Talk about, mm, with the knife. And... and in the, the Greek, he's, he's assuming they don't want to be. So he's just, you know, playing with them a little bit. Uh, that's not a really place to be with these pious Pharisees who are extremely powerful and extremely wealthy, most of them. They heaped insults on him saying, you are his disciple and we are a disciple of Moses. Well, that's interesting because Moses was known for being meek. Far from what they are. We know that God has spoken to Moses. We don't know where this man comes from. Uh, The man replied, this is a remarkable thing that you don't know where he comes from, and yet he caused me to see. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is devout and does his will, God listens to him. Never before has anyone heard of someone causing a man blind to see. If this man were not from God, that's the key, he could do nothing. And then they, they hurl insults on him. Three times the religious rulers show that they're clearly blind. Now watch 
this man who has had his eyesight restored, Jesus heard, and here's the music starting, right? Watch this. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. He found the man, not the man who had his eyesight restored, and said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? It's a title Jesus uses most frequently of himself. It echoes back to Daniel 7, this messianic figure who is both human and divine. And the man replied, who is he, sir, that I might believe? Don't you love it? And Jesus said, you have seen him. He's the one speaking with you. This is a powerful scene. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. It's the only person in John's gospel that's recorded as worshiping God. Jesus said, for judgment has come to this world so that those who do not see may gain their sight and those who see may become blind. Man named Jesus to a prophet from God to the Son of Man. And he worships. <laughs> Isn't this a great text? There's a few things I want to unpack this morning as we look at this powerful scene. And I'm sorry the outline's not in your notes. You have space there. Uh, there is a quiz that follows uh, at the uh, youth meeting tonight. So there it is. How's that? Uh, free food? You got to do something. So no, uh, I'm teasing. Uh, but if you want to write this down, you can. There's, there's three things that I, I just want to tease out here of, the, of this passage. Number one, we need to be cautious in what I say, misjudging God's activity. As I look at John 9, I think first principle is caution in misjudging God's activity. What do I mean by that? Well, number one, bad things are not necessarily equated with God's judgment. Right? I don't know how many times I've heard it in the church. I pastored for many years at a church in Ohio, and I've heard it. Well, so-and-so got cancer, you know, they, they really weren't living for the Lord, so, ooh, careful. Be very, very careful. Christ stated the reason this man's been born blind is so that God might be glorified. I got a couple, two couples in my Sunday school class that I teach. Both of them have children who have special needs, and they'll tell you, it's been hard. Maybe you can relate. It's been hard, but what a joy to see God manifested in his life or her life and in our home. Isn't that exciting? Job's friends thought differently, right? Who, being innocent, ever perished? This whole idea that was lavished uh, on Job is an, an idea that, no, if, if you're suffering, you must be in sin. And one of the things that I see in John 9, and it's clear, is that physical ailment, suffering in this life, is not necessarily related to sin. In fact, it may be that God is allowing it so that he could be glorified. It's a whole different perspective, isn't it, on life, to see it this way. In fact, if the difficulties of life are equated with sin, then we have a whole problem with the cross, one theologian wrote, to redeem our brokenness and lovelessness, the God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power, but sent his beloved son to suffer like us through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil 
Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares in it. We just commemorated 9-11, didn't we? And I remember some of the rhetoric that was circulating among some evangelicals. Oh, this is God's judgment on New York or on the United States. Careful! Careful! Who has known the mind of the Lord? Now, yes, I'm not saying there aren't times, there are times when sin does result in physical sickness, ailments. New Testament talks about that. But be careful because the disciples, echoing just what was being taught by the religious rulers, that is, oh, if this guy is, a sin, uh, is blind, then either he sinned or his parents sinned while he was uh, in the womb. It's ludicrous. Is what Jesus says. Uh-uh. In fact, it's just the opposite. So God could be manifested and glorified in it. Isn't that great? Bad things do not equate necessarily with God's judgment, and bad things do not rule out God's sovereignty. Here's the other great thing, isn't it? You think, oh, what use is this poor lad? I wonder if that's what the parents were thinking. Now our son is having to beg, and according to the Mishnah, it's better to die than to be a beggar. And now he's resorted to this. Oh, what a disgrace. What a loss. And I love it. Jesus finds him in a crowd and says, no, you're going to be exhibit A of what God can do in a life. Not just physically, but spiritually. Right? Isn't that fabulous? Isaiah 46, God is the one who announces the end from the beginning and reveals beforehand what has not yet occurred, who says, my plan will be realized. I will accomplish what I desire. <laughs> and that's what the text says. Look at 9.3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but he was born blind so that the acts of God may be revealed. Glory and faith are found in all they're they're found in all of the miracles recorded in John's gospel. You see that the miracle at Cana, you see it at the raising of Lazarus. Glory and faith. And this miracle is no exception. That man was born blind so that God might be glorified. And he's not inferior class. Alistair McGrath writes experience cannot be allowed to have the final word. If we base our theology on experience or how I feel, we are in deep trouble, aren't we? Last week, I smashed my finger in the window after five hours of a fetal position in another room. It was not a good time for me to discuss theology, right? Because it had all been hell and damnation for everybody. (laughs) The world stinks right? If we allow our experiences to to govern our theology, we're in serious trouble. And Alistair McGrath goes, the theology of the cross draws our attention to the sheer unreliability of experience as a guide to the presence and activity of God. God is active and present in this world, quite independent of whether we experience him or not. Experience declared that God was absent from Calvary only to have the verdict humiliatingly overturned on the third day. Right? Isn't that a great text? If nothing else, cling to the cross. And Paul later writes, what a joy to share in Christ's suffering. Our next door neighbor is a Coptic Christian from Egypt. 
not sure exactly where they are in their walk with the Lord, but it was very interesting. I was talking to Benjamin. I said, Ben, I'm so sorry for how you as Coptic Christians have suffered through the centuries, and especially lately with ISIS and so forth. And he said, ah, don't say that. It's, it's, it's not suffering. It is, uh, you don't have to show pity. He said, it is a joy to be counted with Christ. Isn't that great? And I, I have a feeling if you ask this blind man later on, he could give us a great theological treatise on the blessing of suffering and what it did in drawing him to Christ. In fact, I mean, think of the biblical characters. I just made a list. Job, or excuse me, Job. Job, with all his losses. Abraham and Sarah, barrenness, ridicule. Joseph, betrayal, imprisonment. David, persecution, betrayal. Ruth, don't forget Ruth. Jeremiah, abandoned, commanded to be single his whole life. Daniel, exiled, falsely accused. Paul, beatings, imprisonments. And that's why Paul can say in Acts 20, hey, it is not about me. It's about Christ. And so we need to be careful that we don't misjudge God's activity. And and John chapter 9 just comes screaming at us, careful, careful. And secondly, we need to have caution limiting God's authority. Here's a second point for you. Caution limiting God's authority. Not only can we misjudge it, we can limit it, which is also seen in this, uh, this passage. Our faith must allow for God's grace and power. God's grace and power. What I love when I study the text is not only asking questions of what is there, but what is not there. And uh, as you, you do your Bible studies... Uh, That's one of the questions you want to ask. And when I look at John 9, one of the questions that comes jumping out of the text is why didn't the disciples ask Jesus to heal the blind man? Right? What'd they ask of Jesus? What's the text say? Who has sinned? (laughs) You bunch of louses. They were more concerned about a theological dialogue than this man who could not see. And in a first century world in Palestine, ancient Israel, 2% of the population controlled 85% of the wealth. 2% had 85% of the wealth. There's no middle class. In fact, 15% of the population are what we call expenditures. (laughs) Uh, uh, They don't know if they're going to have any food for the day, and I mean a slice of bread, the starve, they're the beggars, etc. They're the scum of the earth, is how it's viewed. And this blind man is no exception. And yet the disciples miss all the needs. You realize, even being blind, he's, he's barred from the temple? He's barred from the bar mitzvahs? I mean, he's, he's, he's barred from all the social events that occur within the temple complex because he's blind. And they're more concerned about some theological discussion. It's really a sad commentary on our disciples, isn't it? As I look at this text, careful, 
Our faith must allow for God's grace and his power. Andrew Murray, known for his, his prayer life, says, Beware in prayer above everything of limiting God, not only by unbelief, but by fancying that you know what he can do. Right? You have not because you ask not. It's exciting. Uh, Janie told me 25 years this church has been here. And look at you guys. This is fantastic. I love it. I love the generations that are represented in the room. Keep it up. But I, I dare say prayer has been a vital thread to your ministry. Uh, we're studying the book of Acts in the Sunday school I'm teaching. And I knew this, but as you're studying Acts, again, it's just a reminder. Prayer is mentioned explicitly or implicitly in every chapter of the book of Acts. Even Jesus, every significant event in the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is found praying. If the Son of Man needed to pray, well, how much more we, right? Well, that's too convicting. Let's move on. In our prayer life, though, Murray is saying, beware, be careful that we don't limit God. Moses told the Israelites, stand firm and be still. I would have expected what? A massive airlift? Let's get the engineers together. Let's build a bridge across this sucker. How are we going to get out of here? All right? And Moses just said, stand still and watch God. Hmm. I love it. You know, the backdrop of this whole thing is the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles to the Jews, the time that they celebrate God's goodness to them and his provision. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's the backdrop of all of this. One of the three pilgrimages of the year for the Jews. That's why there's so many people in Jerusalem. That's why this man is found probably by the temple area begging like you see at the beautiful gate in the whole scene in Acts, right? This, this time of celebration of, of God's goodness. And what a better picture to show than Jesus being the light of the world, giving not only sight physically, but spiritually to this man. That's, that's just exciting. But our faith must not allow for God's grace and power. Our faith must not be bound by human standards. That's the other thing uh, I just feel it's important. Healing the blind was rare among the, the miracle stories. And I'm sure the, for the disciples, the, their mind didn't even go there. The idea of healing a man who'd been born blind, not that I don't think it had already occurred, but it's still, it's not on their radar. It's not on their, and we have to be careful that our faith isn't boxed in by human expectations of what God can really do. Um, I think one person who's taught me more about this than anyone I know, his name is Zach. And Zach is a Palestinian believer. He has a shop in the old city of Jerusalem. What Zach will tell you, it's, it's only a front. Because the money he makes goes into to sharing Christ with Muslims. And he'll tell you stories that'll make your socks roll up and down of what God is doing. You realize it's one of the greatest revivals right now is among the Muslims? We need to be praying. It's easy in the United States to see a people group and say, mm, terrorist, trouble. These are people who are lost and under one of Satan's most powerful tools is Islam. And yet they know it's bankrupt. The common Muslim knows this is not working. And they're looking for answers. And Zach tells me story after story, and I'm going, 
this doesn't compute as American Christian, you know, it's all about the Jew and I, I'm, I'm having a real hard time here seeing all this. And he tells you these stories and you see God working. <clears throat> In fact, recently, Zach was offered a quarter of a million dollars by American businessmen. And Zach said, absolutely not. Why would I take that money? It would change everything I do in ministry. <laughs> what third world Christian leader would say that, right? That's exciting. And when you go, if you go on the trip, you definitely will meet my friend Zach because he is a rare gem who's suffering, literally, for the cause of Christ among his, not only his Palestinian uh, brothers, but also among uh, Jews in Israel. Evangelical Christians are having it hit from both sides. Um, <clears throat> not taken out and beaten, but it's restrictions on their business and so forth. And you see that. But our faith must not be bound by human standards. You know, I wrote down here, the blind does not know, man does not know or knows what only what has, uh, he, he does not know what's happened, but he knows something has. And the religious rulers who know their theology, they're well versed in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And yet they can't piece this together. It's a caution to all of us, isn't it? Especially those of you, I see a lot of young people, you've grown up in the church. Uh, be careful. Careful um, that your theology isn't, it needs to be governed by the word of God as we see it played out. <clears throat> the parents, another sad commentary in this text, they should have been rejoicing over their son's eyesight being restored. Oh, my little Bobo is now healed, Right? Well, that's a Bobo's not a, that's a dog's name. I don't know. Um, my little Benjamin can now see. It's marvelous. No. Caution. Limiting God's activity. Misjudging God's activity. Let me give you a third. There needs to be caution missing the wonder of God's activity. All three things are missed, aren't they? There's the misjudging of what God is and is not doing. There is the limiting of God's activity. And the third here is that because of those two areas, you're going to miss what God is doing, aren't you? Both times, Jesus is the one who took the initiative in the text. And, and look what the blind man says in 925. I love this. In 925, let's look at this passage. He says, I do not know whether he's a sinner. I do know one thing. Although I was blind, I now see. The real issue is spiritual blindness, isn't it? I don't know where you are this morning. Can you relate? Have the events of life, whatever that may be, kind of clouded the vision? Created some cataracts? Maybe there's cataracts or a little bit of bitterness. Maybe there's a little bit of guilt and shame. Maybe there's just plain old disappointments that come from living this Christian walk. And, and all of a sudden, you're not seeing things so clearly. John, who also penned Revelation, records Christ's words to the church at Ephesus. And remember Jesus' words to the church at Ephesus? 
I have this one thing against you. You've lost your first love. You've lost that loving feeling, right? Whatever, how it goes, right? You're no longer there. Those cataracts have taken over and you need a surgery. But what does Jesus tell the church? Go back to a Bible study? Go to Bible school? How do you turn to your love? Remember where Christ has brought you. We too were blind in sin. We too did not seek God, Romans 3 states, right? It's God who entered time and space and sought us out and called us to his own so that we are his. And we too were beggars. We brought nothing to the table. God did it all, right? And John, recording Christ's words to the church at Ephesus, he goes, return to your first love. Read 1 John. Love is all over the place. And love occurs one out of six times in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus 20 years before because he saw where the church was headed. Return to your love and do the deeds you once did. That's the secret. That's the solution. You don't need a surgery. <laughs> There's not pills you can take or a pair of contact lenses you need to buy. It's simply remember where Christ has brought you and return to the deeds that you once did. Don't miss what God is doing. 2 Corinthians, if you would, turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians is Paul's most autobiographical letter. It just bleeds. He, if it hadn't been for 2 Corinthians, I wouldn't have thought this guy was too real. <laughs> he, he would just sound like super Christian. But when you read 2 Corinthians, ah, this guy really struggled. Ministry wasn't easy. And he writes in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, starting in verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, just as God has chosen us in mercy, we do not become discouraged. He says then in verse 16, Therefore, we do not despair. But even if our physical body is wearing away, and it will, <laughs> our inner person is being renewed day by day. There's nothing more glorious to meet a saint who is walking with God, who's grown old in years and their eyesight might be dimmed, but their spiritual eyesight has never been keener. Why? Because for our momentary light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison because we're not looking at what can be seen. That's the religious rulers. But what cannot be seen, for what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. Right? I wrote ironic that it, the grace-giving act, sin is exposed. Those who fail to recognize this grace bind themselves to sin and ultimately judgment. That's why elsewhere Jesus says in John's gospel, men love darkness rather than light. The sad commentary, isn't it, on us as a human race that we would rather shuffle around in the dark rather than bask in the light of our blessed Savior. The, the religious rulers are case in point. Well-trained, they've got the degrees. Well, they went to school forever. Right? And they can 
parse a verb. They can do all sorts of things in the text, and yet they've missed it. Isaiah 42, verse 16, And I will lead the blind by a way they do not know, and paths they do not know. I will guide them. I will make darkness into light, therefore, before them, and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do. I will not leave them undone. They shall be turned back and be utterly put to shame, those who trust in idols, who uh, worship molten images that are not their gods. Did you catch the text? I will lead the blind, the good shepherd. Why? I am the light of the world, he states, right? And this whole scene that orbits around that I am statement. Uh, Isaiah 9, 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. The text tells us foreshadowing the coming of Christ. And 1 John 1, confess sin and be cleansed by the blood of God, of Christ, are in the light, for there's no darkness in them. And there will be a day when there will be no more darkness. Right? Yeah, GE's going to go out of business. <laughs> So a red lobster, because there's, uh, we'll talk about that later. No C, that's a bummer. But um, Christ is the light of the world, right? By misjudging, you're going to miss God's activity. And sadly, these religious gurus can't connect the dots. These parents who suffered, remember the question the disciples were asking, who has sinned? You don't think that's the first time the parents have heard that question, right? What'd you do, mama? Oh, you blew it, didn't you? That's a shame. I've been hearing this forever. Right? Oh, dad, I'm sorry. It's too bad your son's out there banging at the temple. He shouldn't be begging, but he is. That's too bad. And they missed as well God's goodness, God's greatness. And so the question for us this morning is, is how is your spiritual eyesight? Is it better here or here? And I don't know each of you this morning, but first question is for those of you who are still in the darkness you're still wallowing in the dark <laughs> and you don't know this Jesus. Not like this one. Oh, you know that he is a prophet and a great guru that lived long ago and you may even claim that he, he came from God. Good for you. The demons know that too. But they recognize he's the Holy One. He is the light of the world and that's why they squirmed in their pants. Get us out of here, right? Don't do what... <laughs> we know what you're going to do. Here's an opportunity to respond and embrace this light of the world that will go into those dark crevices of your soul that you're lashing onto or wanting to hide <laughs> and allow God to transform your life. Repent your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But I dare say most of us in this room know Jesus. And there's a day, and you could give testimony at age six. God came into my life, right? I was saved from booze at age six, and no, I don't know, right? You, you give this great testimony, 
And you may be a little bit like the disciples where those cataracts are really clouding the spiritual perspective today. Again, I mentioned it earlier, maybe the plague of guilt. It could be emptiness, turmoil. Whatever the case, it's eclipsing your hope and your peace. And you've kind of bought into some of the lies this world gives. Oh yeah, there was sin involved or this or that, whatever the case. Come, fall, and worship the light of the world. We'll let him remove the cataracts. The cataracts. That too. Your cataracts. Yield him your life. This momentary light suffering fails in comparison to the day when we will stare into the very eyes of our Savior, the light of the world. Right? And may we be found like this man who had his eyesight restored. May we be found worshiping him. <laughs> Father, you know the hearts in this room. You know my heart. And Lord, many of us can testify that day when our eyes were opened figuratively to the things of truth and we understood who we were. That is, someone who's been tainted by the things we've done that are wrong. And there's this huge chasm between us and you, but it's been bridged through Christ's blood. Jesus coming to earth, the God-man, and providing a way. And Lord, he died on a cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. And Lord, he did not remain on the cross or in a tomb. He's alive. And he's right now at your right hand interceding on our behalf. And so, Lord, I ask that you, first, for those who do not know you, that they would yield their life to you. For those who do, I pray, Lord, that for those who are struggling in their faith, Lord, who, who maybe have bought into some ideas that just don't compute with your word, may they bend their knee. Lord, experience sometimes seems so real that it can eclipse the reality of truth. And so I pray, Lord, may they cling to the truth of knowing this suffering on this earth, ah, it's momentary. (laughs) It's brief. And we'll have all eternity to bask in your glory, the glorious light of your Son, in whose name we pray.